My dear sisters, both those of you assembled in the magnificent conference center and those receiving the proceedings by satellite throughout the world, I pray for an interest in your prayers that I may rise to the responsibility which is mine to address you. We have been edified and inspired by the messages of the Young Women Presidency, the beautiful music rendered by these lovely sisters, and the very spirit of this meeting. We have received a renewed appreciation for the Prophet Joseph Smith, for his life, and for the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. The First Presidency of the Church loves you and has confidence in you and in your leaders. You are an example of righteousness in a world which desperately needs your influence and your strength. Perhaps your battle cry might well be the charge given by the Apostle Paul to his beloved Timothy. Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Today, permissiveness, immorality, pornography, and the power of peer pressure cause many to be tossed on a sea of sin and crushed on the jagged reefs of lost opportunities, forfeited blessings, and shattered dreams. Precious young women and you mothers, young women leaders and advisors, may I leave with you a code of conduct to guide your footsteps safely through mortality and to the celestial kingdom of our Heavenly Father. I've divided my code of conduct into four parts. You have a heritage. Honor it. You will meet temptation. Withstand it. You know the truth. Live it. You possess a testimony. Share it. First, you have a heritage. Honor it. There comes thundering to our ears the words from Mount Sinai, Honor thy father and thy mother. Young women, how your parents love you, how they pray for you, honor them. How do you honor your parents? I like the words of William Shakespeare. They do not love that do not show their love. There are countless ways in which you can show true love to your mothers and your fathers. You can obey them and follow their teachings, for they will never lead you astray. You can treat them with respect. They've sacrificed much and continue to sacrifice in your behalf. Be honest with your mother and your father. One reflection of such honesty with parents is to communicate with them. Avoid the silent treatment. The clock ticks more loudly. Its hands move more slowly. When the night is dark, the hour is late, and a precious daughter has not yet come home. If you are detained, make a telephone call. Mom, Dad, we're okay. Just stop for something to eat. Don't worry. We're fine. Be home soon. A number of years ago, while attending a youth gathering at the Clarkston, Utah Cemetery, 
where each of the group viewed the memorial which marks the grave of Martin Harris, one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. I noticed another marker, a small stone in which was inscribed a name and this poignant verse, a light from our household is gone. A voice we loved is stilled. A place is vacant in our hearts that never can be filled. My dear young sisters, don't wait until that light from your household is gone. Don't wait until that voice you know is stilled before you say, I love you, Mother. I love you, Father. Now is the time to think and the time to thank. I trust you will do both. You have a heritage. Honor it. Next in our code of conduct, you will meet temptation. Withstand it. The prophet Joseph faced temptation. Can you imagine the ridicule, the scorn, the mocking that must have been heaped upon him as he declared that he had seen a vision? I suppose it became almost unbearable for the boy. He no doubt knew that it would be easier to retract his statements concerning the vision and just get on with normal life. He did not, however, give in. These are his words. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light, I saw two personages, and they did, in reality, speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying I'd seen a vision, yet it was true. I had seen a vision. I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it. Joseph Smith taught courage by example. He faced temptation and withstood it. Many of you are familiar with the play Camelot. I'd like to share with you one of my favorite lines from this production. As the difficulties among King Arthur, Sir Lancelot, Queen Guinevere deepen, King Arthur, King Arthur cautions, we must not let our passions destroy our dreams. This plea I would leave with you tonight. Do not let your passions destroy your dreams. Withstand temptation. Remember the words from the Book of Mormon. Wickedness never was happiness. Essential to your success and happiness is the advice Choose your friends with caution. We tend to become like those whom we admire, and they're usually our friends. We should associate with those who, like us, are planning not for temporary convenience, shallow goals, or narrow ambition, but rather for those who value the things that matter most, even eternal objectives. Maintain an eternal perspective. Let there be a temple marriage in your future. There is no scene so sweet, no time so sacred as that very special day of your marriage. Then and there you glimpse celestial joy. Be alert. Do not permit temptation to rob you of this blessing. Precious young women, make every decision you contemplate pass this test. What does it do to me? 
What does it do for me? And let your code of conduct emphasize not what will others think, but rather what will I think of myself? Be influenced by that still, small voice. Remember that one with authority placed his hands on your head at the time of your confirmation and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. Open your hearts, even your very souls, to the sound of that special voice which testifies of truth. As the prophet Isaiah promised, Thine ears shall hear a word, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. The tenor of our times is permissiveness. All around us we see the idols of the movie screen, the heroes of the athletic field, those with whom many young people long to emulate, as disregarding the laws of God and rationalizing away sinful practices, seemingly with no ill effect. Don't you believe it? There is a time of reckoning, even a time for balancing the ledger. Every Cinderella has her midnight. It's called Judgment Day, even the big exam of life. Are you prepared? Are you pleased with your own performance? Help can come to you from many sources. One is your patriarchal blessing. Such a blessing contains chapters from your book of eternal possibilities. Read your blessing frequently. Study it carefully. Be guided by its cautions. Live to merit its promises. Now, if Annie has stumbled in her journey, there's a way back. The process is called repentance. Our Savior died to provide you and me that blessed gift. Though the path is difficult, the promise is real. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and I will remember them no more. My dear young sisters, you will meet temptation. It is my prayer that you will withstand it. Next in our code of conduct, you know the truth. Live it. After Joseph Smith's vision in the sacred grove, he received no additional communication for three years. Can you imagine how you would feel if you'd seen God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son, if Christ had spoken to you and then had no additional word or communication for three years, would you begin to doubt? Would you wonder or question why? The prophet Joseph Smith did not wonder. He did not question. He did not doubt the Lord. He had received the truth, and he lived it. My dear young friends, You've been reserved to come forth at this particular time when the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored to the earth. Speaking of the gospel and of testimony, President Gordon B. Hinckley said, The thing which we call testimony is as real and powerful as any force on the earth. It is found in young and old, 
It brings with it the assurance that life is purposeful, that some things are of far greater importance than others, that we are on an eternal journey, that we are answerable to God. My young friends, you've been taught the truths of the gospel by your parents and by your teachers in the church. You will continue to find truth in the scriptures, in the teachings of the prophets, and through the inspiration which comes to you as you bend your knees and seek the help of God. Remember, faith and doubt cannot exist in the same mind at the same time, for one will dispel the other. Cast out doubt. Cultivate faith. Strive always to retain that childlike faith which can move mountains and bring heaven closer to heart and home. When firmly planted, your testimony of the gospel of the Savior and of our Heavenly Father will influence all that you do throughout your life. It will help to determine how you spend your time and with whom you choose to associate. It will affect the way you treat your family, how you interact with others. It will bring love, peace, and joy into your life. It should help you determine to be modest in your dress and in your speech. In the past year or so, we've noticed a dramatic change in the way some of our young women are dressing. Styles and clothing change, fads come and go, but if the dress styles are immodest, it is important that our young women avoid them. When you dress modestly, you show respect for your Heavenly Father and for yourself. At this time, when dress fashions are styled after the skimpy clothing some of the current movie and music idols are wearing, it may be difficult to find modest apparel in clothing stores. However, it is possible, and it is important. The Apostle Paul declared, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? My dear young sisters, you know the truth. Live it. Finally, you possess a testimony. Share it. Never underestimate the far-reaching influence of your testimony. You can strengthen one another. You have the capacity to notice the unnoticed. When you have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to feel, you can reach out and rescue others of your age. To illustrate, may I share with you an experience which took place several years ago when Sister Monson had been hospitalized because of a fall. She asked me to go to the supermarket and purchase a few items. I'm sorry, but this was something I'd not done before. <laughs> I had a shopping list, which included potatoes. 
I probably found a grocery cart and placed a number of potatoes in it. I knew nothing of the plastic bags <laughs> in which purchases are normally placed. As I moved the cart along, the potatoes fell out <laughs> and onto the floor, exiting two rather small openings in the back of the cart. A dutiful clerk hurried to my aid and called out, let me help you. I tried to explain to her that my cart was defective. <laughs> it was only then that I was told that all the carts had those two holes in the back and that they were meant for the legs of children. Next, the clerk took my list and helped me find each item. She never left my side. <laughs> then she said, you are Bishop Monson, aren't you? I answered that many years earlier, I'd indeed been a bishop. She continued, at that time, I lived on Gale Street in your ward and was not a member of the church. You made certain the girls who were members contacted me each week and took me with them to Mutual and other activities. They were fine young women whose friendship and kindness touched my heart. I want to let you know that the fellowshipping you arranged for me led to my being baptized and confirmed a member of the Church. What a blessing this has been in my life, she said, and I thank you for your kindness. My dear young sisters, you can share your testimony in many ways, by the words you speak, by the example you set, by the manner in which you live your life. May each of us emulate the Prophet Joseph's great example. He taught the truth. He lived the truth. He shared the truth. You possess a testimony. Share it. My dear sisters, may God bless you. We love you. We pray for you. Remember that you do not walk alone. The Lord has promised you, I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Tomorrow is Easter. On this Easter Eve, may our thoughts turn to Him who atoned for our sins, who showed us the way to live, how to pray, and who demonstrated by His own actions how we might do so. Born in a stable, cradled in a manger, the Son of God beckons to each of us to follow Him. Oh, sweet the joy this sentence gives. I know that my Redeemer lives. May His Spirit be with you always. I pray in His holy name, even Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.
Recent disasters around the world have touched our hearts. The suffering children who are the innocent victims weigh particularly heavy upon us. We have seen children without family members to provide, protect, and love them. Our hearts desire to reach out and help in some way, any way that would relieve their suffering and bring hope to their lives. We are grateful for the opportunities we have to assist, and we are encouraged by the many who are helping these children. However, we do not need to look far to find children who are living in different yet challenging circumstances. Unknowingly, we may look beyond the children in our own midst. Are we really aware of the perilous circumstances surrounding our own children? We can usually determine if their physical needs are met, but what about their spiritual needs? Do they know of the light and peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The scriptures teach, All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Children need the peace that comes from knowing they have a loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bring light and hope into the world. It is up to us as adults to direct children to that peace and light. The spiritual plight of some children in the world today is depicted in a painting by the Danish artist Karl Bloch. This painting beautifully illustrates a scriptural account found in John chapter 5. Christ, the healer and the comforter, is the focus of the painting. He is lifting a covering from a man who has had infirmities since birth. The man is waiting for the miracle of healing in the pool of Bethesda, but he has no one to assist him. As he waits, hoping for a miracle, Christ stands in his presence with the power to heal him. The painting includes several figures in the background, none of whom are looking directly at Christ. The Lord is in their midst, yet only one man sees him as such. All the others appear to be going about their daily business, oblivious to the great power of Jesus and the miracle about to occur in their presence. A young child and a woman, perhaps his mother, are in view of Jesus. Yet, like the others, their eyes are focused elsewhere. In the very presence of the Savior, this woman fails to direct the child to the Savior. I wonder, would we too have missed this opportunity to come unto Christ? Are life's experiences distracting us and dulling our spiritual view so that we're not focused on that which matters most? I wonder, do we miss opportunities to learn of the Lord and to feel His love? Do we miss opportunities to share with others, especially children, that which matters most, the gospel of Jesus Christ? We have all seen children and youth standing in the crowds, confused, wanting to know what matters most. I can almost hear this child and other children crying out the words so many of us have sung, 
Teach me to walk in the light. Remember the words, Teach me to walk in the light of His love. Teach me to pray to my Father above. Teach me to know of the things that are right. Teach me, teach me to walk in the light. Are we teaching our children to know, feel, rejoice in the beauty, power, and miracles of the gospel of Jesus Christ? President Gordon B. Hinckley has counseled, Let us nurture our children concerning Him who we call the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us teach our children the grand saving principles of the gospel. Children need to know that having faith in the Savior and following Him will help them receive peace in this troubled world. How do we teach our children? We can follow the example of the Savior. In the Book of Mormon, we read of the resurrected Savior's appearance to those in the Western Hemisphere. While teaching the people, He gathered the children to Him. He knelt and prayed with the children and for them. He blessed the children one by one. He felt the joy of their presence and opened the heavens that the children might be taught from on high. As you include children at your family dinner table, and as you involve them in daily family prayer and scripture study, and in family home evening, you are following the example of the Savior by loving and teaching them. As you do this, let them know that together your family is striving to keep the commandments and be worthy to be an eternal family. It may be during the informal one-on-one -on -one times that the Spirit will prompt us to ask just the right questions or to say just the right thing to help our children know and feel the light of the Lord. If we make the opportunities, the Spirit will guide us. We have wonderful, capable children in our midst. We can help them find peace in this life and in the life to come. Children need to experience the light of Christ so they can choose the light and resist the darkness. Moses had a miraculous experience when he was transfigured and beheld God with his spiritual eyes. After Moses had been taught of God and had beheld His glory and work, Satan came to Moses with darkness and confusion. Because Moses had experienced the light and glory of God, he knew the difference. He stood boldly against Satan, saying, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God. Children need to be filled with the light of the gospel so that when temptation comes, they can say, I know who I am. I am a child of God. I know what I am to do. I am to be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, and keep the commandments. Then children can say, I know who I can become. I can become a righteous young woman or... I can become a righteous young man and receive the priesthood of God. Children filled with this knowledge and light can make the decision to reject darkness 
and turn to the light and peace of the gospel. Children who have the gospel tucked into their hearts recognize the hand of the Lord in their lives. Children know more than we sometimes suppose and can do more than we sometimes think. I have learned that children who have the light of the gospel are believing. They do not doubt. Sam, age 11, said, or Samantha, age 11, said, I know the gospel is true because I can feel it. And three-year-old Benjamin said, I know Heavenly Father hears and answers my prayers because He loves me. Children who have the light of the gospel say, I know the Holy Ghost is directing my life because I feel happy when I choose to follow its promptings. Sam is beginning to understand the feelings that come from the Holy Ghost. When his mother asked, Who is the Holy Ghost? He said, It's a warm feeling inside me. Sam also understood that when his little two-week-old brother was sick, it was the Holy Ghost encouraging him to pray for the Lord's help. Can you feel the peace of these children? Teaching children requires more than desire. It requires diligence on our part. Earlier I mentioned the song, Teach Me to Walk in the Light, written by Clara McMaster. Sister McMaster shared with me that while serving on the primary general board, she received the assignment to write a song about teaching children. She found this an especially daunting task and prayed to know how to begin and complete this assignment. After much effort, she submitted her work, only to be told that it was not yet right. She was not told what to change, only to continue the effort until it was right. She was spiritually exhausted, not knowing how to proceed. She again sought guidance from the Lord, made changes, and submitted another edition. This process continued three times until at last she was told it was perfect and she was not to change anything. Even though there were times that Sister McMaster wanted to give up, she diligently worked at what she had been asked to do and what she hoped would bless the lives of children. Her inspired music has been sung by adults and children in many lands and in many languages. This song represents the desire of my heart that all children will learn to walk in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This song begins with a plea from a child, Teach me to walk in the light, and ends with a commitment, Gladly, gladly will walk in the light. It will take time and effort to teach children but we must not become distracted or give up. Our children so need the fulfillment of the promise, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Let no child wonder if they are loved by Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Let all children know who they are, what they are to do, and who they can become. I am grateful to all who reach out to children who love them and teach them that regardless of their earthly circumstances, they can feel peace in the light of the gospel and receive the promises of the Lord.
I would like to speak especially to the children around the world. I have met some of you here and some of you in places such as Africa, the Philippines, Korea, and most recently in Ukraine and Russia. I have visited you in primaries and even in children's hospitals. I hope you know how much you are loved by your family, your primary teachers, and most importantly by Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. Never settle for less than the privileges and blessings God offers you. The standards you keep in your dress, your language, and your behaviors are outward signs of your inward commitment to follow Heavenly Father's plan for you. Your influence upon me is greater than you can imagine. Thank you for the joy and the hope you bring into my heart and the hearts of your primary leaders, and especially your parents. Please remember to express your thanks to those who love and teach you. I know, and I want you to know, you are a child of God. Heavenly Father loves you, and you can pray to Him anytime, anywhere. Try always to remember and follow Jesus Christ, and this will bring light and peace into your lives now and give you hope for the eternities. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1995, I was invited to give a welcome and some open remarks at a scientific seminar in Salt Lake City on the subject of child nutrition. Ninety-six scientists from 24 countries attended. As I surveyed the audience my, during my remarks, I was impressed by the many nations represented as evidenced by their dress, skin color, language, and other distinguishing features. Three or four months later, I attended a state conference on the East Coast of the United States. As I sat on the stand in preparation for the priesthood leadership session, an African man entered the chapel and sat down by the aisle. He looked vaguely familiar, but I couldn't remember where I might have seen him. I leaned over and asked the stake president who the man was. The stake president answered, Oh, he is not a member of the Church. He is a visiting professor from Africa teaching at a prestigious university in the area. A few months ago, he attended some kind of a scientific seminar in Salt Lake City. He picked up a pamphlet about the Church, which led him to read everything he could find about the Church. He now attends every meeting possible. Half in jest, the stake president said, I would be surprised if we were not attending Relief Society meetings. After the priesthood leadership meeting, I reintroduced myself to the visiting professor. He affirmed his excitement for his newly discovered source of truth. He explained that his family, still in Africa, was studying with the missionaries and would be joining him in America in about four weeks, at which time they would all be baptized together. At the conclusion of the Saturday evening adult session, this man came rushing to the podium and, thumping his chest, excitedly declared, My heart is throbbing just like this. I can hardly contain it in my body. I don't know if I can wait the four weeks for my family to be baptized. I suggested he ought to slow down his heart 
and wait for his wife and children so all could be baptized together. When Elijah was fleeing for his life from the wicked Phoenician princess Jezebel, the Lord directed him to a high mountain where he had a most unusual experience. As Elijah stood on the mount before the Lord, he felt a great and strong wind, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. I am occasionally asked by those not of our faith why it is that our Church grows so rapidly in both membership and activity while other Churches reportedly are declining in both. The answer to that question is simply a still, small voice and then a throbbing heart. In this busy and tumultuous and noisy world, it is not like a wind. It is not like a fire. It is not like an earthquake. But it is a still, small, but very discernible voice, and it causes a throbbing heart. It is a quiet burning within that this is the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, with all of its doctrine, priesthood, and covenants that had been lost through the many centuries of darkness and confusion. Yes, it is a still, small voice and a throbbing heart that testify of the miracle of the Restoration. It is a still, small voice and a throbbing heart that motivate millions of members to emulate the life of Jesus in word, deed, and service. It is a still, small voice and a throbbing heart that motivate thousands of retired couples to serve missions for 18 months or longer. They put aside the comforts of life to go into the world serving others at their own expense and at what some would consider substantial sacrifice often serving in remote parts of the world where a hot shower and a comfortable bed are luxuries that only linger in their memories. It is a still, small voice and a throbbing heart that caused hundreds of thousands of young men and women to leave promising professions, put off their education, sometimes leaving athletic or other scholarships, or delay romances to serve the Lord at their own expense to declare the restoration of the gospel. It is a still, small voice and a throbbing heart that give our young people the desire and courage to stand for purity, honesty, principle, even at the expense of sometimes being ridiculed and rejected. It is a still, small voice and a throbbing heart that motivates one to joyfully keep God's commandments and share the burdens of those less fortunate. Yes, there is power in a still, small voice and a throbbing heart. Alma had his way of asking about the spiritual condition of our hearts. He asks, Have ye been spiritually born of God? And then, Have ye received His image in your countenance? Have you experienced this mighty change in your hearts? In other words, is your heart throbbing with the testimony of Jesus Christ? May I tell you just three things of many that cause my heart to throb? First, my heart throbs with the knowledge that Jesus Christ is my personal Savior and that His love for me was sufficient that He would suffer unimaginable pain and even death. My heart throbs when in the solitude of my deep thoughts I realize I can be cleansed, purified, and redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
My heart throbs when I contemplate the price that was paid, the suffering incurred to spare me of similar personal suffering for my sins and transgressions. Second, my heart throbs with the knowledge that a young boy only 14 years of age went into a grove of trees, and from a humble, simple prayer the heavens opened. God and Christ appeared, and angels descended, and thus the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ was restored with all of its priesthood, covenants, and purity of doctrine. My heart throbs when I consider what this boy endured to bring about the fullness of the restored gospel. While heavenly angels were descending, Satan angels were also at work. The persecutions began, and like the prophets of old, Joseph's life culminated in his martyrdom. The thought of all the trials and persecutions of the young prophet remained steadfast and determined. Because of the prophet Joseph Smith, I more fully understand the magnitude of Christ's Atonement. Because of the Prophet Joseph Smith, I better understand the significance of the Garden of Gethsemane, a place of great suffering as Christ assumed personal suffering not only for our sins but also for our pains, infirmities, trials, and tragedies. I understand the inf infinite and eternal nature of His great and last sacrifice. I better understand the love our Savior exemplified in His last redeeming act. Because of Joseph Smith, my love and gratitude for the Savior is magnified and my worship more meaningful. Among the many hymns in our hymn book written by W. W. Phelps is the familiar song with the words, Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. My heart throbs as I sing that song. Yes, because, because we sing with enthusiasm and gusto praise to the man who communed with Jehovah, we sing about the Savior with even more reverence, emotion, and gratitude with the words, Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful to me. My heart throbs because of the enlightenment the Prophet Joseph brought to my life regarding the personal effect of the Atonement of my Savior. Third, my heart throbs as I ponder and I study the sacred scriptures in the Book of Mormon as it complements the Bible and further testifies of the divinity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Redeemer and Savior of the world. Because of this sacred companion to the Bible, my understanding of Christ's doctrine is expanded. Thus, many of the questions left unanswered in the Bible are explained to my full satisfaction. The Book of Mormon is a tangible evidence that Joseph is a prophet of God, Christ did in reality appear to him, and the gospel has been restored in its purity and in its fullness. My heart throbs just to contemplate the miracle of the Book of Mormon's existence, the laborious job of engraving on metal plates, the careful custodianship through the centuries by God's chosen, and the miraculous translation. Truly, it fits the perfect definition of Holy Writ. Because of, because of God's majestic love for us, He provided this evidence that we can handle, we can peruse, we can study, we can even challenge. But most importantly, God loves me enough that He will give me and anyone else who sincerely seeks 
a personal revelation of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, the tangible evidence of the restoration that Joseph Smith was a prophet. In speaking of this sacred knowledge, the Book of Mormon prophet Alma testifies, Do ye not suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know these things, whereof I have spoken are true. And how do ye suppose that I know of their surety? Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true, for the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by His Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation. Like all Alma of old, each of us, members and sincere investigators alike, can know for a surety that these things are true. It is our great privilege to know. It is more than a privilege. It is our responsibility to know. It is our enormous loss to not know when such a privilege is given. The Lord has said, Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. The Book of Mormon prophet Jacob says, Come with full purpose of heart. We do not need to rely upon intellect or our physical senses. We study, we pray, and like Alma of old, we may even fast. And then comes a still small voice and a throbbing heart. Imagine a personal revelation from God that these things are true. The very thought of it makes my heart throb. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Joseph Smith said, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding its precepts than by any other book. The first edition of the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, came off the press in Palmyra, New York, in March of 1830. Joseph Smith, an uneducated country boy, had just passed his 24th birthday. The year before, he had spent a total of about 65 days translating the plates, almost half of it after he had received the priesthood. The printing took seven months. When I first read the Book of Mormon from cover to cover, I read the promise that if I would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the things I had read were true, and if I would ask with a sincere heart and real intent, having faith in Christ, He would manifest the truth of it unto me by the power of the Holy Ghost. I tried to follow those instructions as I understood them. If I expected a glorious manifestation to come at once as an overpowering experience, it did not happen. Nevertheless, it felt good, and I began to believe. The next verse has an even greater promise. By the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. I did not know how the Holy Ghost worked. 
even though the Book of Mormon explains it in a number of times, in a number of ways. I studied and learned that angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. It said as well that one is to feast upon the words of Christ with the promise that the words of Christ will tell you all things that you should do. And it says plainly, if ye understand not, it will be because ye ask not, neither do ye not. I also read that if you will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show you all things what you should do. I had already done that when I was confirmed a member of the Church by the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. If I had expected in my little boy innocence some special spiritual experience, it had not happened. Over the years, I listened to sermons and lessons and read in the Book of Mormon. I began to understand. Nephi had been very badly treated by his brothers and reminded them that an angel had spoken unto them. But ye were past feeling that ye could not feel his word. When I understood that the Holy Ghost could communicate through our feelings, I understood why the words of Christ, whether from the New Testament or the Book of Mormon or the other scriptures, carried such a good feeling. In time, I found that the scriptures had answers to things I needed to know. I read, Now these are the words, and ye may liken them unto you and unto all men. I took that to mean that the scriptures are likened to me personally and that that is true of everybody else. When a verse I had passed over several times took on a personal meaning, I thought, whoever wrote that verse had a deep and mature understanding of my life and how I felt. For example, I read that the prophet Lehi partook of the tree of the fruit of the tree of life and said, Wherefore, I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, for I knew it was desirable above all other fruit. I had read that more than once. It did not mean much to me. The prophet Nephi also said that he had written the things of my soul for the learning and profit of my children. I had read that before and it didn't mean all that much to me either. But later, when we had children, I understood that both Lehi and Nephi felt just as deeply about their children as we feel about our children and grandchildren. I found these scriptures to be plain and precious. I wondered how young Joseph Smith could have such insight in fact, I do not believe he had such profound insights. He did not have to have them. He just translated what was written on the plates. Such plain and precious insights are everywhere in the Book of Mormon. They reflect a depth of wisdom and experience 
that is certainly not characteristic of a 24-year-old. I learned that anyone anywhere could read in the Book of Mormon and receive inspiration. Some insight came after reading a second, even a third time, and seemed to be likened to what I faced in everyday life. I mentioned another plain and precious insight that did not come with the first reading in the Book of Mormon. When I was 18 years old, I was inducted into the military. While I had no reason to wonder about it before, I became very concerned if it was right for me to go to war. In time, I found my answer in the Book of Mormon. They, the Nephites, were not fighting for monarchy nor power, but they were fighting for their homes and their liberties, their wives and their children and their all, yea, for their rites of worship and their church. And they were doing that which they felt was the duty which they owed to their God. For the Lord had said unto them, and also unto their fathers, Inasmuch as ye are not guilty of the first offense, neither the second, ye shall not suffer yourselves to be slain by the hands of your enemy. And again, the Lord had said that ye shall defend your families even to bloodshed. Therefore, for this cause were the Nephites contending with the Lamanites to defend themselves and their families, their lands, their country, their rights, and their religion. Knowing this, I could serve willingly and with honor. Another example. We once had a major decision to make. When our prayers left us uncertain, I went to see Elder Harold B. Lee. He counseled us to proceed. Sensing that I was still very unsettled, he said, The problem with you is you want to see the end from the beginning. Then he quoted this verse from the Book of Mormon. Dispute not, because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. He added, You must learn to walk a few steps ahead into the darkness, and then the light will turn on and go before you. That was a life-changing experience from one verse in the Book of Mormon. Haven't you felt at times like Nephi who said, I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. Haven't you at times felt very weak? Moroni felt weak and afraid that they shall mock at our words because of our weakness. The Lord spake unto him, saying, Fools mock, but they shall mourn. And my grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Life moves all too fast. 
When you feel weak and discouraged, depressed, or afraid, open the Book of Mormon and read. Do not let much time pass before reading a verse, a thought, a chapter. My experience has been that testimony does not burst upon us suddenly. Rather, it grows, as Alma said, from a seed of faith. It will strengthen your faith, for ye shall say, I know this is a good seed, for behold, it sprouteth and beginneth to grow. If you nourish it, it will grow. And if you do not nourish it, it will wither. Do not be disappointed if you have read and reread and yet have not received a powerful witness. You may be somewhat like the disciples spoken of in the Book of Mormon who were filled with the power of God in great glory, and they knew it not. Do the best you can. Think of this verse. See that all these things are done in wisdom and in order, for it is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength. And again, it is expedient that he should be diligent, thereby he might win the prize. Therefore, all things must be done in order. The spiritual gifts described in the Book of Mormon are present in the Church today. Promptings, impressions, revelations, dreams, visions, visitations, miracles. And you can be sure that the Lord can, and at times does, manifest himself with power and great glory. Miracles can occur. Mormon said, As the day of miracles ceased, or of angels ceased to appear and minister unto the children of men, or has he withheld the power of the Holy Ghost from them? Or will he, so long as time shall last or earth shall stand, or there should be one man upon the face thereof to be saved? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for it is by faith that miracles are wrought. Pray always, and with your family. Answers will come in many ways. A few words or a phrase in a verse such as, Wickedness never was happiness, will tell you of the reality of the evil one and how he works. For after this manner doth the devil work, for he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one, neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. Generations of prophets taught the doctrine of the everlasting gospel to protect the peaceable followers of Christ. Mormon saw our day, and he issued this warning, Except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, Yea, except he doth visit them with death and with terror and with famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. When the Lord visited the Nephites, they asked what they should call this church, for there were disputations among the people concerning this matter. The Lord said unto them, why is it that the people should murmur and dispute because of this thing? Have they not read the scriptures, which say ye must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name? For by this name shall ye be called at the last day. 
The central purpose of the Book of Mormon is a testament of, testament of Jesus Christ. Of more than 6,000 verses in the Book of Mormon, far more than half refer directly to Him. So we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies, that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. The Book of Mormon is an endless treasure of wisdom and inspiration, of counsel and correction, adapted to the capacity of the weak and the weakest among us. At once, it is rich in nourishment for the most learned, if they will humble themselves. From the Book of Mormon, we learn about the plan of salvation or the great plan of happiness the doctrines of Christ and of the Atonement, why death is necessary, life after death in the spirit world, the workings of the evil one, the order of the priesthood, sacramental prayers, a sure way to judge between good and evil, how to retain a remission of your sins, clear prophetic warnings, and many, many other things pertaining to the redemption of man and to our lives. All are parts of the fullness of the gospel. The Book of Mormon confirms the teachings of the Old Testament. It confirms the teachings of the New Testament. It restores many plain and precious things lost or taken from them. It is, in truth, another testament of Jesus Christ. This year we celebrate the 175th anniversary of the organization of the Church the 200th anniversary of the birth of the Prophet Joseph Smith. In the Church, much will be written and said to honor him. As usual, there will be much said and written to discredit him. There always were, are now, and ever will be, those who stir into 200-year-old dust, hoping to find something Joseph is alleged to have said or done in order to demean him. The revelations tell us of those that shall lift up the heel against mine anointed, saith the Lord, and cry they have sinned when they have not sinned before me, saith the Lord, but have done that which was meet in mine eyes in which I commanded them. They face very stern penalties indeed. We do not have to defend the prophet Joseph Smith. The Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, will defend him for us. Those who reject Joseph Smith as a prophet and as a revelator are left to find some other explanation for the Book of Mormon and for a second powerful witness, the Doctrine and Covenants, and a third, the Pearl of Great Price. Published in combination, these scriptures form an unshakable testament. Jesus is the Christ and a witness that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And I join the millions of others who have that testimony and bear it to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, on behalf of the worldwide membership of this Church, I extend to our Catholic neighbors and friends
our heartfelt sympathy at this time of great sorrow. Pope John Paul II has worked tirelessly to advance the cause of Christianity, to lift the burdens of the poor, and to speak fearlessly in behalf of moral values and human dignity. He will be greatly missed, particularly by the very many who have looked to him for leadership. Now, my brothers and sisters, I think it appropriate that in opening this conference, I give a few words of accountability concerning our stewardship during the past 10 years. On March 12, 1995, there was bestowed upon us the high and sacred responsibility of the Presidency. In the conference that followed, I made this statement. Now, my brethren and sisters, the time has come for us to stand a little taller, to lift our eyes and stretch our minds to a greater comprehension and understanding of the grand millennial mission of this, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is the season to be strong. It is a time to move forward without hesitation, knowing well the meaning, the breadth, and the importance of our mission. It is a time to do what is right, regardless of the consequences that might follow. It is a time to be found keeping the commandments. It is a season to reach out with kindness and love to those in distress and to those who are wandering in darkness and pain. It is a time to be considerate and good, decent and courteous toward one another in all of our relationships. In other words, to become more Christ-like." <clears throat> you must be the judge of how far we have come in realizing the fulfillment of that invitation given ten years ago. This past decade has been a wonderful season in the history of the Church. There has been a remarkable flowering of the work. There have been many meaningful accomplishments. This forward thrust is not the work of the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, the Seventy, or the presiding bishopric alone. It is the result of the faith, the prayers, the efforts, the dedicated service of every member of a State Presidency or High Council, of every bishopric and quorum presidency, of every auxiliary presidency, and of every faithful, active member of the Church across the world. To each of you, wherever you may be, I express the feelings of my heart and thank you for your great and dedicated service. What wonderful people you are! The majesty and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith, shines today with resplendent luster. As we stand on the summit of these years and look back,
We must never feel arrogant or proud, but we can feel humbly grateful for what has been accomplished in a variety of undertakings. For instance, the Church has grown across the world until our membership outside of North America exceeds that in North America. We have become a great international family scattered through 160 nations. In these past 10 years, more than 500 new stakes have been created and more than 4,000 new wards and branches. Three million new members have been added. The enrollment in our education system has doubled, increasing by approximately 200,000. For the most part, our youth are stronger and more faithful. The Perpetual Education Fund has been created. We started with nothing but hope and faith. Today, nearly 18,000 young people are being assisted. They live in 27 different nations. They're being trained and are moving out of the slough of poverty in which they and their forebears have lived for generations. Their skills are being refined and their earnings multiplied. We have greatly increased the number of temples. In 1995, there were 47. Today, there are 119, with three more to be dedicated this year. The Book of Mormon was had in 87 languages in 1995. Today, it is available in 106 languages. 51 million copies of the Book of Mormon have been distributed during these past 10 years. We have constructed literally thousands of buildings across the earth. They are of a better quality and more suitable to our needs than those previously built. In addition, we have constructed this remarkable hall from which we speak today, the unique and beautiful conference center here in Salt Lake City. With all of this and much more, we have reached out across the earth to assist those in distress and need, wherever they may be. In the last 10 years, we have supplied in cash and commodities hundreds of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid to those not of our faith. We have traveled the earth bearing witness of this, the work of the Almighty. During these same years, I personally have traveled nearly a million miles, visiting some 70 countries. My beloved companion traveled with me until a year ago when she passed on on the 6th of April. It has been lonely since then. Our hope concerning the future is great, and our faith is strong. We know we've scarcely scratched the surface of that which will come to pass in the years that lie ahead. I am now in my 95th year. 
I never dreamed that I would live this long. My life reminds me of a sign that hung by a rusty staple to a rundown barbed wire fence in Texas. It read, burned out by drought, drowned out by floodwater, ed out by jackrabbits, sold out by sheriff, still here. I hope to have the privilege of associating with you, my beloved friends and co-workers, for as long as the Lord permits, and I hope that service will be acceptable. Our foundation is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The authority of the holy priesthood is here restored under the hands of those who received it directly from our Lord. The curtains have been parted, and the God of heaven and his beloved Son have spoken to the boy prophet Joseph in opening this last and final dispensation. Our burden in going forward is tremendous, but our opportunity is glorious. I now repeat what I said ten years ago. Let us stand a little taller, lift our eyes and stretch our minds to a greater comprehension and understanding of the grand millennial mission of this, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This, my brothers and sisters, is my invitation to you this morning. I extend my love, my blessing, and my gratitude as we open this great conference. May the Spirit of the Lord direct all that occurs is my humbled prayer in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.